Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18 and going through verse 23. These are the words of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Phillips Brooks said, everywhere, everywhere, Christmas tonight. We know this uh, phrase. A.W. Tozer, responding to that, said that there were in the world multiplied millions who had never heard of Christmas, and that did not matter to our poet for the purpose of his poem. He was expressing an emotional fact, not a statistical one. Throughout the Western world, we tend to follow the poet and approach, or a poet and approach Christmas emotionally instead of factually. It is the romance of Christmas that gives it its extraordinary appeal to that relatively small number of persons of the earth's population who regularly celebrate it. Some completely uh, are carried away by the excitement of this midwinter festival that we are apt to forget that its romantic appeal is the least significant thing about it. The theology of Christmas too easily gets lost under the gay wrappings or happy wrappings, yet apart from its theological meaning, it really has none at all. A half dozen doctrinally sound carols serve to keep alive the great deep truth of the incarnation. But aside from these, popular Christmas music is void of any real lasting truth. The English mouse that was not even stirring, or the German Tannenbaum, so fair and lovely, and the American red-nosed reindeer that has nothing to recommend, uh, recommend it, uh, have pretty well taken over Christmas poetry and song. These, along with merry old St. Nicholas, have about displaced Christian theology. What a staggering uh, statement uh, to the church and uh, indictment against the Christmas holiday. This week in our Advent series, we're going to embark on the largest of our three themes. Uh, the first one was the seed of Abraham. The second one was a, a conquering king who, who uh, was both physical and spiritual, right? As well as uh, this theme here, and that is the anticipation of God with us. This is a meaning, this is an idea or a theme that is so pregnant with meaning that I do not believe we will fully realize it until eternity. 
I don't believe we'll fully understand what it means for God to be with us until eternity. In Matthew 1.23, we see this theme is also one of the names by which we refer to King Jesus. Both the theme and the name are Emmanuel. Say that with me, church. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which translates, according to the writer of Matthew, translates God with us. As we've seen, the people of God clearly anticipated the seed of Abraham, right? Uh, the one who would bring salvation and, play, uh, and peace between God and man. In chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 21, we see this confirmed. You can look that up in your scriptures too. It says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is salvation in the seed of Abraham, and there is salvation for a particular thing, church, and that is from our sins. We need saving from our sins. We need to keep that firmly in our minds as we celebrate our Christmas time. We also know that they anticipated a conquering king whose kingdom was both spiritual as well as physical. And I'll only remind you of one thing from last week, and that is that there is a reason why our Lord instructed us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is not just this great by and by in heaven that we're waiting for or even looking for. As a matter of fact, if you read the scriptures faithfully and honestly, you won't come to that conclusion anyway because God tells us that he is going to create a new heaven and a new earth and he is going to dwell among his people. So we have both a physical and a spiritual kingdom, but today it's all about God with us. Uh, the idea of God being among his people is a well-established fact according to Scripture. In Genesis 1 through Genesis 3, we see God's hands-on approach in his creation, as well as, uh, I believe, the more important piece of this, the fact that God walked in the garden with his creation. Isn't that a beautiful idea? that he would be willing to do that. Now, there are a lot of people, we're, we're, made, up of, we're made up of a mix of people. Some of us uh, like to think things through just in our heads, and maybe we get a little bit uh, in trouble by doing that. We just get so focused on the logic of things or so focused in our heads about things. And some of us get so focused in the emotions and the romance and the feelings of things that we tend to be blinded uh, in another way. Both of these can be uh, ditches that we fall into. Um, but it is amazing to think, whether you're a, a logical, a heady person, or whether you're a heart person, it is an amazing thing to think that God, from creation, planned to walk with his children. I love that idea. I love that idea. I, I, I like to think a lot as a person, and sometimes I can be in my head and overlook the people around me, much to my uh, shame. Uh, I can overlook the people around me, but the the amazing thing is when I'm reminded of God's truth that he wanted to walk with his people, it spurs in me this desire to remember to walk with them. Amen? And I need that just as much as anybody does. Of course, the fall, we see this in Genesis, but the fall separated us from our creator. Psalm 5.4 tells us a very important truth about God. It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. How many of you know that God is holy? He does not delight in wickedness. But here's what it goes on to say. This is very powerful. No evil can dwell with you. No evil can dwell with you. Now, fortunate for us, we also serve a God of redemption. If you have your Bibles, 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. A God of redemption. Romans 3, starting at verse 23, and I'm going to uh, fill in some gaps of some things that maybe, maybe you don't hear often in biblical preaching, although you ought to. Uh, verse 23, we're all familiar with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sadly, most people end that verse with a period, and there is no period there. There is a comma, and the importance to that comma is that the antecedent of all, all have sinned, uh, is also the antecedent for verse 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that it's universalism. All have been redeemed, and therefore we don't have to worry about anything. It means that what God did on the cross, what Christ does on the cross, was for all mankind. Verse 25, through where I'm going, confirms all of this. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. For what? For the sins of mankind. For the sins of all who had sinned. Remember verse 23. Then we see uh, right after that in verse 25, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. I love that line because all too often we think of grace as the juxtaposition of righteousness, or grace as the opposite of justice. But did you know that God is just in his affording grace? Because he's the one who has the right to do so. So grace is an extension of the justice of God. I don't know if you've thought that through. One of the problems we have as Christians is that we, far too often, we view grace as something that we're owed. Well, by definition, grace is not something you're owed. It can't be something you're owed. But grace can be an act of righteousness and justice on behalf of the God who rules the world, right? So this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, I love the fact that God is patient. Can I get an amen on that one? I love the fact that God is patient because of the forbearance or in the forbearance or patience of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, you notice that that doesn't end with a period either. God doesn't just pass over sins and start a new story. No, he does something with those sins, which we just saw. He, he cancels those sins through the propitiation of the blood of Christ. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, God is demonstrating something here, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be, and here's the other word that doesn't seem to line up with grace. So that he would be just. How is God just? Because he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Make no mistake. God's justice in it is enacted. God's justice is paid out. It happens to be paid out on his son instead of you and I. I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's how we're saved, church. We are saved by grace. Make no mistake, it's a work of God that we cannot do. And he calls us to trust that work. We are saved by grace through faith. This is what the scripture tells us repeatedly. 
As a justifier by faith, God called Abraham. This is another leg of the story. We have the garden, right? We have Adam. We have Eve. Now we have Abraham. God calls Abraham to whom he gave that promise of week one, the seed, right? So he gave the promise of the seed. He gave that promise already humanity steeped in sin. And among God's chosen people, Israel, God promised to dwell among them. So Try to make the connections here. We have a God who walks with his creation in the garden, and then God who makes a covenant people and gives a promise. He says, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be with you. Does this sound familiar? It should. Emmanuel, God with us. It has always been God's plan. In Exodus 25, while speaking to Moses, God declares this. Verse 8, it'll be on the screen. Let them construct... Construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. I love that. Let them construct for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, I don't know if you've ever connected this, but scholars are very, very unanimous in this idea. The first uh, picture of a sanctuary is actually Eden. The first picture of a sanctuary is Eden. And, and maybe you don't know this. Maybe you've connected it wrongly, as I did for so many years in the past, uh, that the Garden of Eden is some sort of title of the place. But there was a place called Eden, the Scripture says, and inside of Eden, God planted a garden. Eden was the sanctuary. The garden was the place in which man was intended to dwell and God would walk with him. What we have here is temple language. What we have here is this idea that there is an inner court and God will walk with his people and talk with his people. Isn't this amazing, right? So what we see here is a sanctuary in Eden, a set-apart place that was designed by God to dwell with his creation. Now let's take another step forward. Now we have the Exodus where we see another sanctuary, holy and set-apart place, also designed by God. See, God gave Moses the instructions on how to build this. Maybe he was just a pitiful carpenter. But the point is, he said, here's how you got to do it. Follow the instructions. Again, this is designed by God, and it was meant so that he could dwell among his people. Exodus 25.8. We just read it, right? Now, as an aside, here's some interesting parallels. Uh, Barney, in his, uh, in his devotion this morning, was talking about geeking out. So we'll just geek out for a paragraph or two right here in the sermon. Uh, and that is this that the parallels between creation and the construction of God's temple are unbelievable. They're uncanny if you'll actually spend some time studying it. In Exodus 24, verses 15 through 17, atop Mount Sinai, Moses receives instruction to build the sanctuary of God. Moses waited six days, and on the seventh day, God gave him the instruction. So we've got this weird six plus one uh, kind of system going on here. Where do we know six plus one? Creation. God worked for six days, and then he rested on that seventh day, right? So Moses waits for six days. The seventh day God speaks, similar to the six plus one of creation. Also, there are seven days of creation, and it just so happens that the instruction of the temple building comes by God through seven speeches. God gives seven different speeches on how to construct the temple. And you'll love this connection. Exodus 25, 1, Exodus 30, 11, 30, 17, 30, 22, 30, 34, and 31, 1. But that final seventh instruction, which is 31, 12, it includes something very important. An instruction on keeping the Sabbath holy. 
six plus one. Yet again, okay? Work, 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 rest. That's what he's calling us to do. There are also parallels with regard to language, but time would definitely fail me if I was to put all those out there. My point, uh, time fails me anyway, church, but anyway, (laughs) my point in bringing this up is not only to show that God with us was God's design from the beginning, but it is intimately connected with temple language. It's intimately connected with temple language, and you're going to see this as we walk through the message today. So God dwells in the garden with creation, but we fall away. God dwelled with his people in his holy temple in Israel, but guess what? God's people fell away. It's a, it's a pretty bad track record we have, okay? God falls away. Thus begins, uh, we begin to worship other gods, that's what we did, and this is really intriguing for you, it should be intriguing to you. Um, What happened here was that uh, we were not only idolaters, but we were taking the name of God in vain in its most accurate sense, its most proper sense. Most of us think of taking the name of God in vain as somebody just saying Jesus Christ as some sort of derogatory thing or saying GD or something like that. And sure, I I would highly recommend you knock that off, okay? (laughs) If you're a Christian, you have no business doing that. But taking the name of God in vain is something far bigger than that. You see, what the Jews had done was that they claimed to be his but they were unfaithful to him. So what are you doing? You're taking his name, but you're doing it in vain. You see the point, right? This is a really important idea. And we run into this ditch constantly in the church today. We talk about nominal Christianity. What does nominal Christianity mean? It means by name only. It's also known as not Christian. (laughs) (laughs) right? Okay, so I I hate to break it to half the world or most of the world, but just because you've stamped a Jesus bumper sticker on your car, just because you wear a Christian t-shirt, just because you listen to Christian radio, I still don't know why, (laughs) just be, (laughs) my bad, anyway, uh, opinionated much? Yes. Okay, just because you do those things. Also, this gets a little stingy on people, just because you show up to church every Sunday. Just because you walk around touting that you're a Christian. But a Christian can be this and do this and do this and do this. No, 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 no. (laughs) No. To take the name of God in vain is a dangerous issue. It's a very clear commandment, right? To not do it. And so what we're doing oftentimes or what we're seeing in the church today is a bunch of people taking the name of Jesus but not living like Jesus. Guess what you're called? Non-Christian. Ooh. That's fun, right? So the idea here is we've got to be careful with this. 1 Corinthians 15.2 is another example of Paul calling this out, right? He says, unless you've believed in vain, what would it mean for you to believe in vain? For you to accept the name of God, but not the things of God. That is a dangerous situation. So God disciplines his people the same way we see in the garden. How did he do that in the garden, church? He expelled them. Right? There you go. The, the left foot of fellowship there. Okay, so God expels them. Israel is sent into captivity. And throughout Israel's story, we see prophetic voices that are declaring a very important twofold relationship. It's very parallel to the prodigal son story. And that is on one end, return to me. And on the other end, I will return to you. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. You see all of this. Isaiah 12 stands out as one of the most amazing. Ma- 
amazing examples of this idea. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to park there for a little bit. And I'm going to walk you through this text because it is absolutely amazing. Isaiah uh, chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Sounds good. We're, we're rocking, right? For although you were angry with me, what would, he be, what would they be referring to? Well, nothing. God is loving, and he's always loved us, and we're lovable. And everything is love, 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 love. <laughs> oh, it drives me crazy. Makes me want to puke, okay? The, uh, okay, God loves you, right? But it doesn't mean you're lovable all the time, right? And guess what, guess what happened here? You were a sinner. And remember what Psalms tells us. God does not dwell with evil. And so God separates himself from us in our sin. But the beauty of this is although he's angry with us, he provides a redemption. He provides a way back together, which happens to be the blood of Christ. So this this prophet here is not speaking out of turn. He's not going, man, I really need to understand the new covenant before I can speak correctly about God's word. No, every person, even in the new covenant, who has not repented and believed in Jesus Christ, stands in a position where God is angry at them. He loves you, so he offers an extension of how to save you and to change this story. But he says, you're angry with me. Your anger is turned away, and you comforted me. Now, this is where it gets really amazing. We'll take a step back in your Bibles, just one chapter here. It's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to understand what he means when he says, then you will say on that day. What day is he talking about? Well, turn with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 11. This is such a, such a beautiful passage. Isaiah 11. What is this talking about? Well, it's talking about the coming of Christ. Here's what it says. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And I'm just going to read this out to you. Listen up. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he the Messiah, King Jesus, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, powerful imagery here, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Trust me, church, God's kingdom is physical, and he is going to strike the earth With the rod of his mouth, he has with the word of God. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So what do we have in that day, in the day of Christ? This is what's going to happen. It says, although God is angry with us, his anger is turned away, and he comforts us. What a powerful truth. Right? So he goes on in verses 2 through 5, and here's what Isaiah says in, in, back in chapter 12. Behold, God is my salvation. Of course he is. God is the one who has to redeem us. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. You ever have a moment where you're short on praise, you don't know what to sing? Just sing his name, trust me. Trust me, his name is our praise. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water 
from the springs of salvation. This is an amazing image. So verse 4 and 5, And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. This is declaration of the gospel. This is us going into all the world and sharing the truth about Jesus. Make them remember that his name is exalted. So Isaiah 12 comes in and it says that there's coming a day. We found from Isaiah 11, the day is the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, salvation is going to come and we're going to rejoice and we're going to sing and we're going to do this. But it is not just salvation full stop. There's something bigger that happens. And it concludes in Isaiah 12, verse 6. There's only six verses in this great chapter. But Isaiah 12, verse 6 says it this way. It's really powerful. It says, cry aloud and shout for joy. Because of your salvation, that's great. But look, O inhabitant of Zion, for great, read it with me, church, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel, Emmanuel, God with us. The idea that God would be with his people was a theme that was deeply ingrained in the people of God. It was written on their hearts and their minds. It's not enough to just see that we have salvation somehow disconnected. We have salvation because God comes and walks with us. He comes and he dwells with his people. Now, I don't know the type of person you are, but I do know that this is encouraging to me because there are definite seasons in life where life gets lonely. Can I get an amen? There are seasons when life gets lonely. There, you can be in a crowd of people and feel completely and utterly alone. But here's the beauty. God is with you if you are his. God is with you if you are his. Don't you love that truth? That changes absolutely everything about how we live out our life. So this is no doubt why when Israel was exiled and returned, their immediate first step after exile was to do what? To rebuild the temple of God. Why? Because they knew in the garden there was a temple. They knew that their first temple God dwelled. So they built a temple. Why? Because they longed to dwell with their God. They needed God among them. And they knew that that was a very real uh, thing or a very necessary thing. Although this is a little out of order, the end of our great story, or the beginning, depending on how you look look at it, says the exact same thing. Revelation tells us of a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new Eden, if you will, a new sanctuary where what? Emmanuel, where God dwells with us. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3, here's what... God's word says again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. There's a lot to that. We could spend all day just talking about that line. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Made ready. And this is beautiful, church, because this is talking about you and I. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Isn't that who we are, the bride of Christ? So verse 3 is where it puts it all together. It's just an amazing thing. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the tabernacle, the temple, 
God tabernacling with us, God dwelling with us, God being with us. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And here's the line at the end of the story, or the beginning of eternity, and God himself will be among them. Emmanuel, God with us. Over and over, this idea is there. But before all of the end of the story, or again, the beginning of eternity, as I said, we have to deal with this King Jesus moment. We have to deal with what Matthew 1.23 says, and behold, the virgin will be with child. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Here's what Isaiah 7.14 says. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with you, uh, will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, there are a couple of parallels to this story that are really worth us considering. Uh, We can turn to Isaiah 7 uh, for these parallels and I will walk you through a brief history of Ahaz and his uh, not so great leadership. So, so here's, here's what's happening. Uh, we see that this prophecy comes that there will be a virgin with child and uh, that child, Emmanuel, is going to deliver his people, uh, is going to fulfill the work of God. He is going to be God with them. This theme, yet again, of God using an earthly deliverer an earthly king to deliver his people is common throughout Scripture. Don't miss this. This is not, they were not overtly spiritual in their minds. They saw the physical manifestations of these things throughout history. They saw David for what he was, and they wanted another David. They looked at it as a physical thing. So what's happening here is that a man by the name of Ahaz is the king in Judah. And Israel and Judah are in a civil war right now. And so you have Israel to the north, you have Judah to the south, and they're fighting amongst each other. And you have Ahaz, who is king of Judah. Now, Israel has sided with another uh, surrounding army, and that is the army of Syria. And they are teaming up together so that they don't get taken over by Assyria, okay? So you have the northern kingdom of Israel teaming up with Syria, and they are against Assyria. They want to get Judah on their side. They want Ahaz to be on their side. So they invite Ahaz to be a part of this, but they have ulterior motives. What are their ulterior motives? They want to bring Ahaz on, they want to dethrone him, and they want to put a puppet king up in, its, in his place. You can read this in the first eight verses of chapter 7. So what happens is they want to set up this puppet king in place so that they can do what they want. But in the stories of the kings, we learn that Ahaz had already made up his mind that he was going to side with Assyria, and we have a really bad division that's going to continue to happen. But God intervenes in this situation, and he actually shows a a tremendous amount of mercy to Ahaz. And here's what he says to Ahaz, and this is something that we would all want to hear as well. He says to Ahaz, he says, ask for a sign. Anything you want. It can be as high as the heavens or as low as Sheol. Translation, it can be whatever you want. Okay, now if I were Ahaz, and I'm so glad I'm not, but if I were Ahaz, I think I would have just asked God for something cool to see the fireworks. Right? I mean, I, th- I think I would have just been like, well, fine, if you, wanna, if you want me to do this. But see, Kings tells us that Ahaz had already made his plan. Ahaz had already decided he's going to side with Assyria. So he rejects this idea, and he does so with this little false piety. He goes, well, you're not to put the Lord your God to the test. How many of you know that's true? 
You're not to put the Lord your God to the test. Unless God says, test me. Okay, that's pretty awesome, right? Test me and see. Test me in this. See what it is that I say and see that it's true. So Ahaz had made his decision. But God said, ha-ha, I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. And this is a very... This is a very staggering set of verses, starting in 7, verse 10. Look at what happens. And this will recap that story just briefly. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Just what I said. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, now the he here turns Now it's Isaiah speaking for God, and look at what he says. He says, listen now, O house of David. Okay, when a prophet points at you (laughs) and says, listen up, it's just like your pastor. No, anyway, okay, so anyway, okay, so here we go, here we go. He says, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will now try the patience of my God as well? (gasps) And the air went out of the room, right? And verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord God will give you a sign. Oh, geez. You have the opportunity. You can ask for whatever sign you want. You said no, so God goes, here, I'll give it to you. What is his sign? It says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, before you freak out and think I'm some sort of heretic, this is a very well-known and understood view. It is actually the far majority view of those scholars who have studied Isaiah and understand it. As a matter of fact, of the four major views of Isaiah 7 in its translation, there's only one that differs because the view says that this is only about Jesus, period. Every other view takes into account that this is not just about Jesus. Why is it not just about Jesus? Because there is a man in chapter 8 who happens to be the son of Isaiah and a prophetess who is named Emmanuel. You see, what God does oftentimes is he declares a truth, he declares a promise, he prophesies a thing for the immediate people he's talking to. And then he has what some scholars call a census planor, or a fuller understanding to that. This is why in Matthew 1.23 it says, This was the fulfillment of prophecy, that God would give us a son through a virgin. King Jesus, right? But there is a man in chapter 8 who is also referred to as Emmanuel. There is one who comes for this purpose. This is what God does. He continues to show himself faithful, show himself true. Let me give you a couple of points to prove it. Uh, In the Old Testament, in Mosaic Law, Moses says that you should not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. How many of you have heard that? Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. How many of you know that Moses took that literally and you shouldn't muzzle the ox, the actual ox, while he's treading out the grain? Yes. But how many of you also know that in Corinthians, Paul says, what God meant by that was that you should pay your pastor. What a fun, what a fun day it is. Anyway, sales pitch, right? So what, what's the point? What's the point? The idea is this. I'm not... There's, there's no pitch for money right now. The point that I'm, I'm getting at is that Scripture tells us that the worker is worthy of their wages. Now, do you think for a second that Moses had it in his mind, pastors, 2,000 years or 3,000 years after God gave him the instruction? Ain't a chance. But God fulfilled that in his day and had something more 
to be understood about it. Now, before you go spinning out of control, starting to read your Bible and saying, I've got the new interpretation of what God means for the 21st century. Unless the Bible expands the definition of the prophecy, it's done, so shut it. Right? You don't get to add. You don't get to change. You don't get to go, I know what it meant. Now, the Bible means this to me. No, it don't. It don't mean what it don't mean. Okay? It means what God has said. So this whole idea of Isaiah having prophesied in Emmanuel now comes true in Jesus Christ some 700 plus years, well, much later. Now, there are some interesting points to that story, right, that I could go on and on about, but we don't have time for that. So the takeaway from it is the incarnation. What did God promise to the immediate people of Isaiah's day? God with them, a deliverer. What does he promise to us? God with us, a deliverer. He's constantly doing the same thing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. As if Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.23 were not enough, Mark's gospel begins by quoting Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 40 verse 3, which prophetically speak of God's coming Messiah and John the Baptist who would, who would lead the way for that. John's gospel famously says, and the word became flesh and what church? Dwelt among us. This is the point of it. And we saw his glory, a glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. But this story sounds slightly different, and I hope you can see this. It sounds slightly different from the other three that we've talked about. It sounds slightly different from Genesis, slightly different from the Exodus, and slightly different from Revelation. There's a missing component that we haven't talked about yet. Do you know what it is? The temple. We haven't talked yet about the temple. We just have God with us. But how is God with us? This is how God dwells, okay? So, Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. This is what says, or gives us our understanding of this. Ephesians 2, 17. And he came and preached peace to you when you were far away and peace to those who were near. By the way, that's a fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah as well. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So there's some imagery, the next verse, 20 through 22. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, what's this building about? Being fitted together is growing into, say it with me church, a holy temple. There's our language. A holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. So what we have, again and again, is God's promise to dwell with his people. And again and again, there's a temple. And now that we're in this new covenant time, now that we're in this place, we are that temple. Church, we are that temple. Can you say that with me? We are that temple. Together, one more time. We are that temple. I am not the temple by myself. Some say, oh, but we're a temple of God. Read that the right way. This is y'all language. This is we all language. This isn't Nathan language. I'm being built together with you to become the temple of God. This is no doubt why Hebrews 10.25 tells us to forsake not the assembling of one another. Why? 
You are forsaking the very place in which God dwells. No, it's just church, Nathan. You take that up with God. You take that up with God, but that's not what his word says. There's an idea that we've come together. Now, I would love to hearken back to Psalm 5, though, for a second, and to remind you that God still does not dwell with evil. That's why in the church, in this temple of God, there's still a call in view of mercy to present your body as a living sacrifice. Amen? Holy and pleasing to God. No ways around that. That's what you have been called to do. The point of all of this is to show that God is, is, is wanting to dwell with us. The people of God were anticipating one. He was God. He was Jesus who would come and dwell with them. He did this in the coming of King Jesus. He did this through us because we are his temple. And next week what we're going to look at is we're going to see how this God with us for Christmas, we're going to see how this practically plays out right here and right now in our life. So before I mention the loneliness piece of our season, um, would, you, would you be candid with me? Would you raise your hand if that's you? You feel lonely? This season makes you uh, stress out? This season makes you feel isolated? I got four little girls. I got a loving wife. I still feel it. I got family on both sides right in town. I don't have to go anywhere. It's amazing. And yet there are times when I feel lonely. But what do I have to do inside of that loneliness? The answer is not to find fulfillment in everything else around me. The answer is to cry out to God and find fulfillment in him dwelling in me. Amen? We have got to come to this piece that says God is with his people, church. Because what's going to happen is we're going to fill our holiday, we're going to fill our season with all kinds of things trying to plug a leaky hole. And Jesus is the only one that's going to fix any of that. Amen? We have got to come back to this place where we are truly contented people in the presence of King Jesus. Not in the presence of eggnog and friends and presents and all of that. We're never going to end if that's what we're trying to fill the void with. But if we can understand Emmanuel, God with us, I'm telling you that loneliness and depression can go. You know what scripture says? It says, cast your cares on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. But there's more to it when we connect all of scripture. Because he's sitting right there. Cast your cares on him. Lean on him. Why? He's with you, church. He's with you. He's with you. So this year, as you surround the tree and surround your family and, 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 and sit and trade gifts, I hope, I hope that you will tell your family what people one day, once upon a time, if you will, anticipated about King Jesus. Number one, he was the seed of Abraham who took away the sins of the world. Number two, he's a conquering king, and no matter what happens in any election, God is on the throne. And number three, that God is with us. God is with us. So Isaiah 12 is the only way I know yet again how to conclude this, this time together, speaking of Emmanuel. Here's what Isaiah 12, 1 through 6 says one more time. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comforted me. Ah, the seed of Abraham who takes away the sins of the world. 
Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Ah, God is on the throne. Verse 3, therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, and he, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.